like all crypto networks, there are a lot of challenges. I think Dpin is probably has a, a unique set of them. On the physical side, probably one of the, the largest challenges is running a hardware-based business. There's typically a little bit more centralization risk that can occur with a hardware-based business. Unless you have many suppliers of that hardware, typically it would come down to like, you know, maybe one or two centralization points that could come down to. So if you have one supplier of the device, then that device manufacturer gets taken out and then like the, the whole network is, is, is potentially disrupted. Metaverse podcast. How is your day going? Uh, the day is is wonderful. It's uh, it's Friday, and so the weekend should be starting pretty soon. And yeah, excited to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on. I appreciate you coming. So, Mike, to kick things off, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about your crypto origin story and also about Lattice Fund? Sure. Yeah, I um, I think like a lot of people in crypto, um. Uh, became, I mean, the first introduction typically is Bitcoin. Um, I, I found out about it, not through, uh, stumbling across the, the white paper, but really, um, you know, when the Silk Road was becoming more popular, um, first heard about Bitcoin at that point of time and some friends were transacting on there, buying some Bitcoin. And, uh, when Coinbase went through Y Combinator, uh, or just came out of Y Combinator. That was the first time I bought some Bitcoin myself, so back in 2013. But, um, you know, unlike some people who were maybe a little bit smarter than I was uh, and caught the bug at that point of time, I kind of, it was a little bit more of a casual interest. I uh, bought some Bitcoin, kind of followed it up through that uh, that big uh, spike during that time period and then the crash after the Silk Road collapse in Mount Gox. And kind of casually observed it for a few years um, i was working at facebook at the time so it was pretty busy with that and facebook was filming so it was a pretty exciting time to see be working there and i just I, I didn't i didn't go super deep on on uh on crypto at that point and then um but i would ca casually observe it and i still had my bitcoin in my my uh, coinbase wallet and then in 2015 i met the founder of a DeFi project uh, called IDEX, Alex Wern, who, um, you know, at one point in time, it was the largest decentralized exchange on Ethereum uh, post Ether Delta pre Uniswap. And, uh, you know, the, you know, this is 2015. I think the ICO for Ethereum had just happened pretty recently. And, you know, I said, oh, what if, you know, Meta, what are you into? And he said, I'm into Ethereum. And I said, well, you know, what's Ethereum? And he was like, he started telling me about it. And then uh, he was like, you know, you should go home right now, sell all of your Bitcoin and buy Ethereum. And I, uh, I didn't go home and sell all my Bitcoin and buy, buy Ethereum, but I did go buy some Ethereum at that point of time. And it was just kind of an interesting time to, to buy it because, you know, it was pre all the ICO mania. Not a lot was happening necessarily, but, um, you know, it was kind of these, this early days, the, the Dow hack had just occurred. And, um, I feel like it was fortuitous to buy it at that time. It was like pre, like pre, pre run up. Uh, and when the, the craziness of the sort of ICO 
uh, mania happened and I started like digging in deeper to everything that was happening in the ecosystem and, and learning about it. Um, I felt like this was a good next opportunity in my career to make a transition. So I had been at Facebook for quite a long time, uh, had been looking for the next thing, didn't want to go down the sort of traditional path going to the next like, big tech giant. So like, a lot of people go to Pinterest or TikTok or Snapchat, what have you. Uh, so I was looking for like just a no, totally new paradigm. And Ethereum and broadly crypto felt like that. So I met the founders of a company called CoinList, which um, is a spin out of AngelList and uh, was formed when Protocol Labs uh, wanted to do the Filecoin offering. So they partnered with AngelList, built a platform to do a regulated offering with accredited investors only. And uh, so the company was spun out outside after that sale in order to do more, uh, more, more crowd sales. Uh, so I met the founders. They were like, Hey, we need someone to run sales and business development. Uh, and I said, this is perfect. And, and left Facebook joined CoinList, and I joined CoinList, the absolute top of the, uh, of the market. So it was, um, spring 2018. And basically from the moment I joined, uh, it just went like everything just collapsed. You know, a lot of people were questioning if crypto would, would, would stick around at that point, but it was, it was fortuitous. There's a lot of smart people, both at CoinList and people that I was interacting with. And that's also where I met uh, the co-founder of Lattice, uh, Regan Bozeman. Uh, so, you know, sometimes like one thing doesn't work out, but it's meant, you know, it's meant to be other things will start to work out. So yeah, uh, <clears throat> moving on to Lattice. So stayed at CoinList for uh, four years. During that time, uh, met my partner, Regan. So I was working on the deal sourcing and diligence for teams who go on the list. So we list, listed a bunch of layer one blockchains like Solana, um, Flow, Blockstack, Celo, Immutable X, um, probably two dozen large infrastructure projects. And um, Regan was, you know, once those deals were closed, he was responsible for making sure they were successful in launching their tokens. So everything from marketing, fundraising, deal structuring, legal foundation setup, really like kind of had to had to put all the pieces together and him and I became you know close through that process uh from a working relationship standpoint and then in the depths of crypto winter uh fall 2019 you know I had this idea like hey we should we should uh organize a crypto ski conference and we um you know we threw up a landing pay and just said, hey, like, we're going to host this thing up in Tahoe. If you're in crypto and want to come, uh, you should come out. And uh, yeah, it was a great event. We had about 50 people come out, a bunch of other fund managers from the space, the guys from Framework, uh, Kyle from Multicoin, say uh, from 1KX, a bunch of founders. So um, the co-founders of uh, Dune Analytics, uh, OpenSea, and a whole bunch more came out. I had a great time. And Regan and I realized, hey, we like, you know, we like working together. We should do more. So we started uh, investing together as angels at that point of time. Um, you know, had the chance to work with a bunch of great founders through that process. So the OpenSea guys, Dune Analytics, Audius, um, and, and did probably like maybe like roughly two dozen deals uh, through, you know, let's call it, um, you know, mid 2020 through the through the bull market of 2021. And then at the beginning of 2021, Regan had left CoinList and started Dub Metrics, which um, he then went on to sell to Masari. Uh, we said, Hey, like, why don't we like take what we're doing and professionalize it more, go out and raise a fund. 
So summer of 2021, we went out and raised our first fund. That was a $20 million vehicle. And, um, you know, spent most of the, the rest of 2021, early 2022, investing that in roughly 20 to 30 startups uh, at the seed stage. Yeah, having a great time. Uh, bull, the bull market's over. Bear market is a much, uh, I think, much, much healthier time for investors like us to be investing. So excited to be doing it. So yeah, that's 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 a bit of my 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 crypto journey to date. Quite a journey, Mike. Quite a journey. Um, funnily enough, we we had Andrew Steinborg from Sephirmion, and his crypto origin story also kind of started from Silk Road. That's how he got the Bitcoin bug, and then that led to NFTs. So you did mention Coinless. Uh, I remember when I joined crypto, I think during 2020 to 2021. Any anything that got listed on Coinless was all the all the rage. Um, so just also want to like pick your brain before we jump into some of the meatier topics. So in terms of the due diligence and some of the projects that used to get listed on on, on Coinless, what were some of the criteria, maybe on chain metrics or or data points that that maybe you looked into? Uh, whilst you were there to get projects listed or for the launch pad. It was interesting because at that point of time, there weren't any on-chain metrics because most of these were entirely new blockchains. And in many cases, they were they were launching with a white paper. So if you look at even going back to the Filecoin sale in 2017, they had a white paper, nothing was built. Um, and they, they only went on to launch it you know, several years later. That evolved over time, uh, partially due to securities regulation. Because if you're launching something on a white paper and selling it, it's pretty pretty clear it's a security. Um, so over time, it evolved to the point where like we would only do a token sale if a team was ready to launch mainnet. But what that meant is there really there wasn't a whole lot of data, and because these are the layer one blockchains, like well, what are you working with? So. Um, a lot of this was kind of the typical stuff that any maybe stage investor might look at. So who's the team? Kind of what's the proposed tech? If it's a layer one blockchain, obviously the addressable market is pretty large. But if it wasn't a layer one blockchain, like what is the addressable market? You know, what has the team built so far? And like what traction could they demonstrate? So for a layer one blockchain, maybe it would be like, what validators have they lined up for their incentivized test net? Do they have developers hacking in some capacity on a test net? Uh, and there was some beta uh, beta version. Uh, so these were all things that we looked at, but because like these projects, by the time they got to coin list, you know, maybe had gone through one or two rounds of financing. Another benefit that we had was, you know, the signal that was associated with the project. So had certain investors already invested in it, um, you know, how much money had been raised. Uh, so that was a, you know, through all of those things, we could kind of triangulate on the projects that we would end up going on the list. And we had a bunch of you know, really successful projects go through, you know, most successful ones uh, were ones that launched, you know, at least for investors were ones that launched during the, the bear market. I think the most famous obviously is Solana. They did a, an auction on, on CoinList two weeks after COVID broke out. So worst possible time ever to, to run a, a token sale and uh, raised, I think around $1.8 million, 22 cents token, um, so the, for the 200 or so, roughly two to 300 people that participated, pretty, pretty, pretty amazing opportunity to to generate returns. Even now, for after the you know decline in price on Solana, it's pretty uh, pretty spectacular. Excellent, Mike. So now I want to double kick on some of the more philosophical issues. So, what attracted to you uh, 
from Web3 in terms of unique business model or unique value proposition Web3 opens? And what was that attractive factor for you? I mean, Web3 really wasn't even a concept whenever I joined crypto. Uh, we hadn't come up with that name yet. Uh, for me, the attraction to the space was really just it was entirely open or felt like totally new. So coming from, uh, you know, being in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, there's these very, um, you know, you have big tech companies that have been around for a while, tried and true business models that have been tested over time and a machine of people and systems and funds and accelerators that all kind of already existed. They had been there for a while. And granted, like new things pop up, but like the the institutions, uh, the startup world had that 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 infrastructure had been laid for a while. And um you know, crypto with both its ecosystem and the business models that are proposing and how um you know how it pushes value out not just to kind of the centers of um you know this nexus of power but also pushes it out to the contributors in various capacities was really attractive um so i didn't really i mean at the time like it was actually a little bit hard to understand but just felt like very new and different and um i didn't really really know where crypto would go but i think that was probably what attracted to me like it felt like the other paths were somewhat formulaic and I was looking for something that had a bit of an unknown, unknown destination. And I still think we're, you know, somewhat in that, in that camp of a bit of an unknown destination. I mean, things are, are clearly working much more than they're working at that point of time, but it's the, I think the unknown that was, was the most interesting aspect to it. Yeah. Once I was looking at your portfolio, you, you guys have invested in a lot of interesting projects that kind of captures that theme of social coordination or if you contribute to your network, you do get some rewards. So we'll we'll touch upon Deepin in a bit. But the two projects that kind of um, caught my eyes were Delphia and I think Karate Combat, which recently also kind of launched. So maybe for our audience, maybe we can zoom into those two projects to kind of hammer in the point with regards to social coordination and how if you contribute to network, you somehow get get incentivized. On the on the Delphia side. Um, you hear a lot in crypto about the value of user data and how users should own their data. They should be able to monetize it. They should, um, you know, receive the benefit for that. And I know that, you know, better than a lot of people, because I was at Facebook and like Facebook was better at harvesting user data than just about anyone. And that user data was tremendously valuable. Now, what Facebook did is they translated user data into ad targeting, which then big corporations could use or you know, big and small corporations could use to attract users to, to buy, you know, buy, buy whatever they're selling. Um, but that's the real challenge is like, how do you take user data? It's like this, this oil and refine it and make it valuable and something that can be actually used. And, uh, you increase the monetizability of it because user data on its own. It's like, if I have user data, like if I give it to someone, like, what are they going to do with it? So it's like, there's not like a whole lot that you can do with it. You need either scale or you need to enrich it in some capacity. Uh, so the Delphia team, um, you know, comes from a financial background. What they realize is if you look at, you know, most hedge funds um, or, or Wall Street investment banks, they're using user, user data to uh, enrich the algorithms that they use for trading purposes, uh, whether it's, um, you know, indexing, tracking, or, um, 
you know, just any, any alpha that they're tr- looking to generate. So what Delphi attempted to do and it continues to attempt to do is to combine user data from the people on the platform plus the algorithms that they've generated for their trading strategies. So if you contribute your data, so let's say your Amazon purchasing history, your credit card data, and there are kind of various tiers, you could unlock access to various funds or better yield by contributing the data and can in aggregate, um, instead of them going out and finding a data broker to buy that data from, they're allowing the users to contribute themselves and then share the upside of the better generated returns from um, from investing and using that data. Uh, so this is a way where like you're not getting paid directly for uh, that data. For it's like, hey, we'll give you five dollars per month for access to your data. Instead, they're saying, hey, we can generate better returns. We'll share those returns with you. We just need you to provide your data in order to allow us to do that. Um, so that's that's a, on one side, and I think that's something that. Um, is lost in probably a lot of projects where it's just like, hey, user data on its own should be valuable. And probably in many cases, like there's some value, but for the average person, maybe it's a few bucks a month that might not be that interesting. But is there a way to enrich it or make that data more valuable, provide value on top of it? Again, how do we share value with the people that are generating it? In this case, it's um, uh, you know using uh, you know financial trading strategies. On the on the other end of the spectrum is a is a is a project called Karate Combat, and this is a team that launched a uh, a new combat sports league. So most people are most familiar with things like UFC uh, or MMA, and you know what they saw at the time is there's a gap in the market for for karate. Uh, but most people in you know globally are familiar with karate and the practice and the discipline. Uh, but there wasn't uh, a global sports league centered around it. And our, our philosophy is that in the future, as new leagues are developed, it's, it's, it's much more likely that, you know, fan participation and the people that ultimately like make the league, um, you know, valuable and exciting, obviously you have the fighters or the, the athletes, but like the fans are, you know, that's what, that's what really creates it. And, um, figured out more ways for them to get involved and, benefit from from that involvement so in the case of karate combat they have a token uh the token does a number of things but the two most important pieces to it are governance so you can uh do things like you know choose uh who's who will fight in a certain match against each other you know maybe what they wear um it could be even things like what you know what music they might come into um and the other piece is uh kind of a betting component so if you're familiar with a, a project in the DeFi space called Pool Together, they have this idea of a no-loss lottery where you can like put up, uh, put up a bet, and then uh, you don't risk that that bet, but you share the upside of if you do actually win. And this is the same case for uh, you know Karate Combat, where you can bet on matches, um, but you're not you're not actually risking uh, the initial collateral that you that, that you put down. Um, so they, they, they've kind of coined this phrase for called up only gaming. And in our view, it's like, this is a perfect match for uh, a crypto audience because, you know, it's male, it's generally younger, um, which, you know, matches really well with crypto. And you kind of combine these two things together, give them more participation and rights in the league. And, um, you know, they're likely to, uh, you know, feel that mo- ownership even more so. I, I think this leads us to a perfect segue into Deepin. 
So earlier um, with Telefia, you kind of highlighted the value of the fact that if you kind of contribute your data, you can get some kind of upside. I think Deepin kind of plays into a similar uh, theme where if you're early in helping set up the network, if the network does take off, you kind of reap the benefit eventually in the future. So kind of a similar thematically. So we'd want to love, love to learn more about Deepin from you. So for our audience, can you elaborate what is Deepin? And I know you guys have invested in a few Deepin related projects. We'll also love to learn more about those. Sure. Uh, so Deepin is a, a new category in crypto. It's only, I think, about a year old at this point of time, at least the name Deepin. Uh, and Sammy from Masari was the first person to come up with the term, but it's gone through several iterations. So Multicoin wrote a blog post, uh, I think about two years ago now, uh, with their thesis on proof of physical work. And that was kind of tied to their Helium investment. And Helium was kind of the first project, I think, that kind of blended the physical and digital or on-chain world, but it's evolved quite a bit since then. So they wrote this uh, you know, thesis on proof of physical work. Then um, about a year ago, we put out a, a blog post on, uh, we kind of tried to come up with a new name for it. So like proof of physical work was a bit of a mouthful. So uh, we came up with the same tip-in, which was token incentivized physical infrastructure networks. The idea that you were using token incentives to coordinate physical infrastructure in the real world, whether that's wireless networks or energy, and then allowing for the contributors to the network, those setting up this physical hardware, uh, to benefit from whatever revenue stream would be driven from that physical hardware. Uh, and then uh, I think several months later, Sammy from Masari came out with uh, the phrase uh, decentralized physical infrastructure networks, just like all things in crypto. They are decentralized. Um, and that's gone even through several iterations. So the first one was like really talking mostly about these more uh, hardware-oriented uh, infrastructure networks. So you had wireless, so projects like Helium uh, and Pollen. Uh, you had things uh, in the weather space where you'd set up things like weather vanes, uh, like WeatherXM, uh, geospatial measuring with these satellite monitors, uh, things like GeoNet. Um, and then it evolved from there to more digital resource networks. So on that side, like you have the physical, and then on the other side, you have um, uh, digital resource networks like storage or compute, uh, which are all kind of categorized in this broad category of uh, decentralized physical infrastructure networks. And they both have like their nuances. So, you know, for the physical side, uh, one like hardware is typically a component of it. So you actually have to set up physical hardware somewhere. Um, it's usually location dependent. So there's going to be certain locations that are going to be more, more valuable than other locations. So maybe, you know, a, um, for a wireless network, having an antenna set up in you know, downtown Manhattan is way more valuable than having it out, you know, way out in the middle of nowhere because there's no demand for that, that wireless connectivity. Uh, and the final, um, you know, final aspect is that there's, you know, fungibility of, um, you know, the assets, so it's like different. Like if you have, you know, storage, it's like storage is storage. It almost doesn't matter where it comes from. Whereas with, um, a physical resource network, like actually where it is, 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 is going to create a difference in the, the value of it. So there are definitely differences in these twos and the, and the category is, has definitely evolved over time as, um, you know, both new projects have launched and as, I think the space has broadly started to think about like, okay, what makes 
the most sense to categorize into this decentralized physical infrastructure network. So you have both the physical side um, and then more of like the digital resource side with things like storage and compute and uh, databases, et cetera. Perhaps, Mike, you can also highlight two of like a couple of projects that you have invested in, in, in this category and what those projects are sure. trying to do. Yeah. Uh, so when we raised our first fund, Helium was really the only project at the time that I think we classify as as, as deep in, um, at least on the physical uh, physical side, not the digital resource. And we wanted to find more. We thought this was a really novel way to bootstrap a um, a new infrastructure network without a lot of upfront capital from you know one centralized entity. And um, you know we met a team called Demo. Uh, which was building a decentralized mobility network focused on uh, putting hardware devices into vehicles to collect user data. So this kind of goes back to the theme that we talked about earlier um, and provide that data to both application developers and also uh, you know companies that just would want to access that data for monetizing purposes. So it could be insurance companies, it could be other car companies, battery manufacturers, then you could also build a whole host of applications on top of this mobility network. So it could be decentralized car sharing, it could be creating new insurance models, uh, et cetera. So we invested in them. Uh, right now, they've scaled up to about 20,000 vehicles connected over the past year. Um, they're doing everything from like creating games on top of the network or you know, the idea that every vehicle becomes an NFT that's on chain. Those vehicles then can be you know, paid for various purposes. So you can start to see like where um, the on-chain components and the off-chain you know, hardware device uh, get tied together. So that's Demo. Uh, they launched their token maybe about nine months ago. So that's live now. Um, another investment that we made is a project called Daylight by a team called Anode Labs. Daylight is building is a decentralized energy network. The hardware component is uh, multifaceted. Uh, the first piece is a energy monitor that gets put on your uh, electrical panel in your home. What that does is monitor monitors your energy usage patterns at a baseline, so you can start to see okay how much energy am I using? You know what uh, what rooms, what devices are actually draining the most energy. Um, and if you look at the way that energy is actually you know, monitored by the grid, in most cases, like there's very archaic systems where they can't get real-time uh, energy usage patterns. So they can start to sell this data both back to utility companies and then also um, similar to similar to Demo, like financial companies that want access to uh, energy usage data in certain geographies or cities or even you know at the country level. You hear a lot about grid flexibility or um, you know grid demand rolling blackouts in the United States because there's too much um, uh, too much strain on the grid. And what's happened is companies are starting to form what are known as virtual power plants. And what a virtual power plant is is if we can combine all these energy assets, so let's say a home battery and a thermostat. You can start to contribute to the grid. So when it's under, um, you know, high demand and they need more energy, um, and you have uh, energy assets like batteries storing energy, you can actually supply the grid with that energy and start to monetize it. Um, so what Daylight's doing is using token incentives to not only get that energy monitor into place, but say, hey, 
know, if you add solar here, you add a home battery, you can hook this up to a virtual power plant and further monetize, um, you know, further monetize that, that energy asset. So there's, there's, there's a couple of trends that are, are, are super important here. One is, um, you know, some, the movement towards clean energy. So, um, you know, I think around the world, everyone's quite familiar with climate change and, and global warming. Uh, so there's, there's more alternative energy production that's, you know, taking place whether it's wind or, or solar or hydro and, uh, daylight's contributing to that by incentivizing users to make that transition on their own and not just kind of rely on, uh, rely on third parties and where they, where they capture that energy from. So they just went live on testnet now, so you can purchase the initial energy device, the, the energy monitor, um, Soon they'll be adding things like, you know, the ability to add batteries and thermostats, but no token is live on that one, but, uh, that's one you can, you can start using and, and testing out, uh, at least if you live in the United States. Amazing. So, so Mike, uh, have you guys looked into, or are you guys investigating, um, in, in a same vein, decentralized compute? Because you, you talked about multiple themes that you could be, uh, play with daylight, for example, climate change. I feel like with decentralized compute, there, there are also opportunities to play multiple themes such as rise of AI, rise of metaverses, spatial computing. Uh, so maybe we'll, we'll love to get it download. Maybe you are investigating this space. Maybe you have made a couple of investments, but they're kind of in, in step forward. Yeah. So um, we've definitely looked at the decentralized compute space um, over the past year, even prior to, I think, the excitement that has uh, has occurred around the uh, the rise of AI. Um, so we've looked at projects like Jensen, uh, Akash, uh, and Render, and I think they they all do um, some really exciting stuff. Um, our viewpoint on the decentralized compute space is that we think it's likely to be verticalized in some capacity. So there's some specialization that occurs as opposed to generalizability. So we're starting to see this a bit more now with, um, you know, for instance, Jensen is is really just focused on AI, uh, render on this 3D rendering, although I think they're, they're also trying to get into the AI space. Um, but, uh, you know, looking at projects that, you know, gravitate towards one modality of uh, customers that they're serving, not only because they can, you know, likely uh, serve those customers better, but just by you know better understanding that market, the challenges that those companies are specifically facing, you know, having networks to sell into. Uh, so looking at the background of the team, of like, is this you know a team that can you know sell into co- companies in that vertical, uh, or companies that we'd be excited about? So we haven't we haven't made any investments in decentralized compute space uh, just yet. Definitely one we're monitoring pretty closely and. And trying to figure out if there, are, if there are opportunities, I think you know one of the challenges at this point, you know, for a fund like Lattice is, uh, you know, we tend to invest at the earliest stages. We're pretty valuation sensitive, and just given the excitement and like some of the hype around uh, around AI, uh, I think the the best time to probably to have invested in this would have been like a year or two ago. Uh, right now, is definitely like it's it's feeling a little bit frothier. Yep, uh, it, it, that that totally makes sense. Uh, one comment there would also be it's, it's so with these projects, I think it's also very tough at at earlier stage is also very tough to look at the distribution or the or the demand side because they are the earliest stages, right? My viewpoint is even though things will get verticalized, 
whoever owns the distribution here will will have a huge advantage. And I, I know a lot of Web2 projects, despite not having a Web2 cloud computing service, they do have access to peer-to-peer -peer networks or access to gaming computers for whatever base they, they can obtain. So I think that is uh, something I, I feel like will also be very important for this vertical. So, so, so Mike, why do you think this um, DeepIn is such an important vertical uh, given the current crypto landscape? If you look at uh, a lot of crypto, you probably classify it in two ways. There's inward-looking problem-solving. There's outward-facing problem-solving. Uh, there's still a lot of people both inside of crypto and then outside of crypto, certainly, that are like, what, what exactly is, is crypto solving in the world? Um, so you have the, maybe the Bitcoin folks on, on one side that are, you know, solving, solving money problems, but a lot of like the founders in crypto are mostly looking at well, what are problems in crypto that I can solve? So whether it's, uh, scalability problems or MEV or, uh, you know, how do you trade tokens that were created on, on chain specifically? They're very much internally facing problems that anyone in the rest of the world is basically like, why, why does that actually matter? But eventually you have to start looking at outward facing problems and it takes a unique entrepreneur or founder to say, well, okay, here's this problem that exists in the world. Um, I know this because I've been operating this space for 10 to 15 years. And this is a way that actually crypto can solve that problem. So whether it's token incentives, whether it's using smart contracts in some capacity, um, they have a unique insight that that is differentiated from a founder that's purely trying to solve a crypto-related problem. So while we're you know totally comfortable investing in projects that um, that solve you know crypto-related problems, we investigated a number of them. You know, we're also quite attracted to finding entrepreneurs and founders that can look outward and say, "Here are problems in the world." So you know talk about climate change or the, um, you know, the siloing of mobility data and say, there is a, there is a way to use crypto to solve these things. So I think you need both. It's definitely not going to get, you know, these aren't going to get done with, you know, one without the other, but if we always solve inward facing problems, then eventually you'll say, okay, well, like, there needs to be some connection to the rest of the world. So, um, you know, we haven't made as any, as many investments on this side, but you're seeing this with the rise of reward and the interest within DeFi of bringing uh, things like treasuries or securities or real estate uh, on chain, because those are massive addressable markets that if you can only, you know, if you can bring on a small percentage of them, it, it dramatically increases the size of the crypto footprint. And then also makes a lot of the existing crypto infrastructure, whether it's exchanges or uh, money markets that much more valuable because you you've on ramped more value onto the platform. So, you know, we, we like finding entrepreneurs that are tackling problems that not only address problems within the crypto world, but also uh, uniquely address some problem outside of it. Yeah, I totally get it. Uh, uh, last week, I was trying to explain my friend about MEF. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not skeuomorphic, some of the crypto problems we have. <laughs> yeah. So, Mike, I would also love to have a download on some of the challenges you see with, uh, with, the, with the deep end sector. I have a whole list that I would love to discuss. So maybe we'd love to know your views, like what are some of the big ones that you see with this sector? Like all crypto networks, there are a lot of challenges. I think Deepin is probably has a, a unique set of them. 
on the physical side, probably one of the, the largest challenges is running a hardware-based business. Now, granted, once they get large enough, they can start to you know get third-party suppliers to actually build the hardware and distribute it for them. But if you talk to any startup that's trying to run a hardware-based business, crypto or non-crypto, typically it's like one of the, the most difficult um, spaces to be in just due to costs and also supply chains that need managed on a global basis, like just not, not very easy. Uh, so that's that that that's one big one big challenge is that that, that these teams face. Um, I think another one is that there's typically a little bit more centralization risk that can occur with a hardware based business because if you're manufacturing hardware, um, unless you have many suppliers of that hardware, typically it would come down to like you know maybe one or two. Um, uh, centralization points that could come down to. So if you have one supplier of the device, then that device manufacturer gets taken out and then like the, the whole network is, is, is potentially disrupted. So there are things that the teams are doing to try to address that mostly around like getting, you know, more, uh, you know, access points or more suppliers of their, uh, their device. But that's, that's another one. I think another one is that because these are outward facing problems are typically also being addressed in some capacity by, some incumbent or other startups that are rising in the space. So, you know, looking at more of the digital resource sides of things like compute and storage, you're going up against Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and even within crypto, you know, you talk to the average startup founder, they're like, oh, I'm fine using Amazon for, um, you know, for compute purposes. Like unless they really, really either philosophically are aligned with uh, decentralization at every point of the stack, you know, Amazon works quite well for them. Uh, you know, maybe at some point in time, they'll think about decentralizing everything, but you know, for now, like the database, we'll just use a centralized database. Um, so that is probably like one of the biggest challenges. These are outward facing problems. These problems have probably been addressed in some capacity by an incumbent or a startup that exists, that works pretty well, that doesn't have some of the, like, the baggage of crypto rules tokens and maybe it's a little more complicated um, and people can rely on them. So that's probably like the the largest challenge that exists is like this, the demand that exists for this product or service is probably already being served by some incumbent and like, how do you get people to switch over unless you're offering something either like 100x, 10x better or 10x cheaper? Um, it doesn't, work to just say hey it's centralized that's typically not enough for the average consumer like they want to have some better experience so that's probably like the, the biggest challenge facing the space and i think that's up to the each individual team is to kind of sort through what is the unique value proposition that they're adding in order to address you know what is um you know an incumbent that's already um you know already potentially owns that market Mike, very well articulated. And I think you covered the switching cause. You also covered the demand and the supply side. I, I think that that was very well covered. Um, I'm my curious to hear your, 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 challenge, your challenges are. Yeah, I think the biggest one uh, is like the way I kind of think about this is it's like a triple-sided marketplace. It's not like a dual-sided, especially with the hardware piece. So when we call when we talk about deep and like things like helium, if you think about it, it's triple-sided. Like you have to sub like first have the demand side, then you have to have the supply side, and then you also have to get the hardware component. So getting three-sided of the marketplace is difficult. 
But I think once you're able to do it, then the business becomes very defensible and then you start to see the network effects and then have a more. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, will struggle setting up those three-sided uh, marketplace or th that three sides of, of, of the network effect. So I think that's one. Um, and you mentioned switching costs from incumbent. I think the user inertia cost is, is also very higher. Like convincing somebody who's a dev who has been addicted to AWS Telling them, okay, switch. Let's not use AWS. Let's use Render or let's use some other network. I I think it's it's difficult for them from a habit standpoint. So I think those are the two uh, big ones that come up. And then, uh, yeah, and then and the monetization as well, like demand side monetization, which which I think it's 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 kind of a uh, not it's an early topic to discuss, but we haven't seen that. But that's because the, the network hasn't had that scape velocity. But I think that is still to be determined on how does, uh, from a token standpoint, the demand side get monetized. Uh, we'll be yet to see that play out with Render or Helium or some of the projects out. Yeah, the the demand side is always the place where we go first with any project that comes in to pitch these things because we've clearly demonstrated that tokens are a powerful incentive and people will do a lot of things in order to earn tokens. So supply is, you know, has, has historically not been the problem here. It's really been generating demand. So it's an evolving process. And I think teams are a bit more pragmatic about it now. Like Helium ran like really the first experiment of this where, you know, they had these token incentives. They launched it in the bear market when honestly they couldn't, they couldn't give the, give the devices away. No one wanted to install these things. But once it like, captured some momentum and people started to look at it and they got excited about it, it almost like got ahead of itself um, because the demand wasn't, wasn't there yet. So teams and the founders, um, you know, for instance, one thing that a lot of teams are doing now, instead of launching tokens is they'll, they'll run a point system. So similarly, people like to compete for more points. The expectation maybe down the line, they'll get an airdrop. What that means is they can start to tweak the business model and figure out demand and that true product to market fit in an environment where they're not giving away so much of the network supply. Um, it also helps with um, you know, securities risk because you're not giving you know tradable um, tradable assets. But that's probably one of the biggest tweaks I think teams are making is like, hey, let's spend a little bit more time like figuring out product to market fit, figuring out the demand side, not giving away tokens for kind of useless supply or you know supply that's not that that valuable um and, and taking a kind of a more slow and pragmatic approach to launching these networks absolutely i'll also highlight one point that i've seen especially with decentralized compute i've seen um uh, decentralized compute projects i've seen um that there's a conflict of interest between token holders and equity uh so for example with some of the decentralized compute you have a SaaS based business model so, for example, on a monthly basis, if you're paying some dollar amount, you get access to priority compute. So, I think that is also one issue that a lot of these businesses would have to solve. Like it can either be a SaaS model or it can be a token model because then you have this inherent value accrual issue that which entity or which side of the equation gets better value accrual. And I feel like that is also one of the challenges in their tokenomics that they need to kind of uh, solve for. Yeah, and this is, I mean, going back to uh, the D-Pen 
model challenges. There are legacy business models that demand side businesses are used to, you know, used to paying on a subscription basis or a very straightforward API call basis. And they definitely don't want to get involved in tokens. So a lot of teams have done a good job of like extracting away the complexity of dealing with tokens, but it certainly does like at some point of time you do have to deal with like, well, you know, where does that value go? And um are there uh trade-offs that take place because um you know token value is appreciating not due to necessarily like actual network demand usage it's more based on speculation uh and then the people that actually need access to the network are paying you know premium only because people are speculating on the network increasing in value but not because the actual value is there yet so i mean these are i think unique challenges to, to crypto more generally because of tokens, but like, yeah, the, um, the defense space, because like there's some, you know, there's some, some asset like storage or compute and people are used to us paying, they want to pay a certain price because they baked it into how their business operates. Like they don't want to, they, they, they certainly don't want to deal with that variability. Mike, fascinating discussion. Uh, I do want to switch topics now. Uh, I recently read the, read, read your report on 2021 seed stage introspection. I think you guys posted on Twitter and also on your blog. So perhaps enlighten us what you have found. Uh, feel free to share your screen and, and tell your audience uh, how do you kind of see uh, the fundraising landscape evolve and some of the insights there. Yeah. So the project started because we, oh, it's a bear market. We've got more time on our hands. Um, so what we wanted to do is look at every 21, 2021 seed stage team and see if there were any investment opportunities, you know, from that, that batch. Uh, so there were about 800 companies that raised money, uh, pre-seed or seed rounds in 2021. That was looking at like height of the, the bull market, if you will. Uh, and we wanted to do a follow-up to see, okay, like company A, what's happening with them? You know, they lost a token. Have they stuck a product? Like, is this worth reaching out to them? So as we started working on this, we're like, hey, this is actually pretty interesting. Maybe more broadly for the entire space to understand, hey, we invested $2.6 billion in 2021 across, across seed stage. Like, what happened to all of it? Like, where did, this, where did these companies go? So our initial expectation, just because there was so much, I think, maybe exact uh, irrational exuberance during 2021, like a lot of these companies would have maybe disappeared or like they've quietly shut down. And um, I'll pull up my screen. Within this database, you can see all of the companies that raised in 2021, uh, you know, when they raised, uh, how much, what ecosystem they launched within, uh, sector sub subcategory, if they raised the follow on around. So what we, you know, initially wanted to see and share is like, well, are there differences between the ecosystems? So like, do Ethereum-based teams ship more than Polkadot-based teams? Or uh, so we've we've categorized the data in that capacity. So you have both ecosystem and sector and subcategory. And then did some of these teams raise a follow-on round? And then did they lock the token? And then. I think probably the most important category, which we haven't exposed in this in this database, we kind of have at the aggregate level, is like, did they uh, ship a product to test net? Have they shipped a product to mainnet or mainnet equivalent if it's not an on-chain uh, product? And then uh, have they found uh, product market fit? So if you look at the report, 
which uh, I'll share now. For each of these, we break down, you know, for instance, this is the distribution by state. So I just mentioned like, have they shipped their product? Uh, so roughly 70% of companies within uh, the 2021 vintage have shipped a product. You'd say, well, is that good? Is that bad? Um, you know, how do I even benchmark that? So I think probably like the most interesting data point is like roughly 20% of teams have shut down. Um, but if you compare that to startup industry norms, so non-crypto startups, um, it's roughly in line, not slightly better. And what we calibrate or what we uh, classified as shutting down is if a team, you know, specifically said on Twitter, hey, we're shutting down the project. Uh, this is no longer going to exist. You know, maybe remove your funds or do whatever you need to do. Or, um, you know, they hadn't posted to any social channels in greater than three months. Um, so I think that that was another good sign for the industry that, you know, despite all of the challenges over the past 12 months, um, you know, many of these projects are still shipping. Uh, they're still uh, delivering products. And the probably the most important thing is like, how many of these projects have actually have found some semblance of product market fit? Uh, so you can see here, there's roughly, we had about like almost 5% of projects out of the 800 and left found product to market fit. You would probably say that's like plus or minus 1% on each side. Some people would be, be, be a bit more generous. Some people be a bit more conservative on, you know, how many teams are, are finding that product to market fit, but it's really elusive. So, uh, you know, maybe an NFT uh, uh, marketplace uh, during 2021 found product to market fit, like they're crushing it in volume, but with the NFT bear market that we're in now, like, do they still have product to market fit? Do they have to kind of ship, shift to a new market? Do they have to just kind of keep chugging along? So that can be a little bit tricky to define because in crypto, like the markets move pretty fast, not just prices, but also like user trends and how people you're using products and it might feel like you had product market fit, especially if you're using token incentives. And then at some point of time, you realize, you know, actually like, you know, maybe we don't. Um, another kind of cool uh, takeaway is probably a little too hard to see, you know, within the sectors. So uh, infrastructure, probably no surprise. Uh, you know, we had designated as, you know, being more successful and finding product market fit. I think, um, it's a bit easier within crypto. Um, you know, consumer products are still quite challenging to launch. Like you hear a lot about now, like why do we not have more consumer use cases, more social apps, more um, you know, more apps that kind of match the web to experience. Um, but it's challenging. It's similar to the Deepin projects. Like if you're a social app, you're going against incumbents that are, you know that are uh, well-oiled machines that have, have scaled to billions of users. You have things like Twitter and uh, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. Like those are amazing experiences from a consumer consumer perspective. It's hard to, it's hard to, like hard to pass those up. Whereas infrastructure, like I'm attracting developers to build in a new way that they've never been able to, you know, build before. You're offering them something different than, uh, a consumer experience that maybe is, like you said, skewmorphic to what already exists within Web2. Uh, so that's probably Mark, another... Also, uh, uh, this, yeah. this, this sentence also kind of um, stood out and caught my eye. A lack of clear product market fit did not hold projects back from launching token. Uh, and and yeah, so 
So a lot of projects in crypto, even though they might not achieve product market fit or they might be close to burning out all of their cash, they would perhaps launch their token. So maybe this could be a tell sign for a lot of investors out there, retail investors out there, to be really careful in terms of what they're investing. There's a, a friend of mine who's you know, kind of jokes around, once you launch a token in crypto, usually that becomes the product. And uh, that's what you start to optimize around. So, you know, if you think of a product like, uh, let's say you were, you made a new soda, uh, you'd think about, well, where's my distribution? I need to have it in Whole Foods. I need to have it in, uh, you know, various supermarket chains and bodegas. Uh, and similarly, like if you launch a token, it's like, well, my distribution is our exchanges and I need to get people to talk about my token. Like that becomes the product. So it's a real like dangerous path to go down we totally recognize the value of tokens and how it can you know, be used to, um, uh, you know, incentivize the community, uh, get people involved, share an upside. But like, there's a real danger at locking a token too early before you found product market fit. And then that just becomes a trap. Uh, so particularly within gaming and a lot of these games haven't even launched yet. Um, you know, most of these teams launched a token they didn't even launch a game. And uh, that's just a, a difficult path to go down because you know, not only are you, uh, like if the token price has gone down, you're, you're dealing with that situation. Um, but like if you change your game or you change your product and now you get this token that's meant to do something on the network, does it make sense anymore? And then you have to go out and change it. So there are some risks. You even see someone like OpenSea, like, you know, despite what's happened with Blur, um, and some of the, the market share that Blur has taken away using their token, like OpenSea still hasn't launched, you know, hasn't launched the token because they're really laser focused on finding product to market fit that's sustainable over a long time before launching a token into market. So for us, like with teams that we advise, you know, we really try to push them to uh, to hold off on launching a token until they've at least gotten to the, the early stages of, you know, finding product to market fit and a token really pours more fuel on that fire in order to scale it up. Yeah, I guess I think teams have to be really careful and differentiate between product market fit and liquidity market fit. Uh, you, yeah, you can have a strong narrative that kind of attracts liquidity, but doesn't necessarily mean you have a strong product to go by. But yeah, the uh, the report, I think, uh, I, I won't go through the full thing, uh, just I don't think we have enough time, but it's definitely worthwhile to, to really, you know, get a kind of a bird's eye view of what happened was that 21, 21 investment class, uh, what ecosystems seem to be uh, making more progress than others, and then what sectors are, you know, finding more success than uh, than their, their counterparts. We'll follow up uh, next year with 2022, and most likely we'll have more ecosystems. We'll also have more, uh, you know, more sectors to dive into. Like even within this one, you know, you have consumer kind of all lumped together, but because consumers starting to segment into things like more NFT related applications or more games, uh, we'll probably start to, to break it out into, um, you know, specific subclasses just to get how much money is flowing into each of the uh, subsectors. So Mike, cognizant of the time, just a final question before we conclude the podcast. What are some of the themes and vertical uh, moving forward you are excited about? So, and also if some of the projects are listening to this podcast, they can, they can reach out. You hear a lot in crypto that we're still, it's still early. And, and we definitely believe that it is still early. And we look at how early it is probably on two dimensions, both user numbers and that value within crypto. 
Uh, so for us as a fund, we're looking for projects that we think can either address one or two ends of that dimension. So either something that we think attracts a lot of net new users into crypto in some novel way, particularly if they can attract users to participate and share the upside um, in a way that doesn't just require them to buy into the space. So like, okay, I have to just go on Coinbase or decide to the exchange and buy tokens. And that's my way to participate. So that's why Deepin is really interesting to us. It's like, I can plug this device into my car. I can put this in my home. I can set up this antenna. Like there's a way to actually participate and share in a network and earn tokens and be a part of it. Uh, you know, not just go and buy tokens and then kind of wait and see what happens. So that's, you know, from a user perspective, anything that like on ramps net new users in not a way. Uh, and then the other end of the spectrum are projects that we believe introduce more um, on ramps and liquidity into the broader crypto ecosystem. So uh, that could be anything from payments to cross border uh, remittances, really anything that increases the liquidity, you know, within, within the crypto ecosystem. So, you know, particularly even within B2B where, uh, you're on-ramping more, more capital than you would simply by just, um, you know, looking at more consumer, consumer oriented use cases. But those are kind of like the two ends of the barbell. Then like everything in between is just like, how do you make crypto more, you know, better, faster, cheaper, and easier to use. Amazing, Mike. Thank you so much. This was such a fascinating discussion all in all, and I thoroughly enjoyed enjoyed the chat. Uh, again, thank you very much for joining us uh, to the Open Metaverse podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll hit your Twitter links and, and the blog below so our audience can follow you and perhaps ping you if, you're, if they're work, working uh, within those two verticals or within those two spectrum. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me and have a, have a good weekend. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.